Welcome to the Meta Woman Podcast. We address the issues, opportunities, and challenges facing women in the development of the metaverse, the biggest revolution since the internet itself. Every week, we bring you conversations with top female talent and business executives operating in the gaming and crypto industries. Here's your host, Lindsay the Boss Poss. The Meta Woman Podcast starts now. Hello, and welcome to the Meta Woman Podcast, part of the Holodeck Media Podcast Network. I'm your host, Lindsay the Boss Poss, and from struggle to success, we're covering it all. To our returning listeners, thank you so much for tuning into the show week after week. It means a lot to me. And to our new listeners, welcome. I hope you enjoy. I'm really excited to introduce today's guest. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Um, after initially meeting this person, it's just been so wonderful to dig into their background a little bit um, and learn more about what they do. So today on the podcast is Netta Whitney, Senior Vice President and Head of Marketing for the Americas at Christie's, which is so cool. Um, Netta, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's so exciting to be here. Thanks for having me, Lindsay. Yeah, just to start off, I would love for you to give the audience a bit about yourself and your background. I know we share common career paths with both work in telecommunication and sexual health education, and then we both made the jump into tech somehow. So I would love for you to detail kind of how you got to where you were and what you're passionate and excited about. Yeah, um, it's not the most straightforward path into the art and auction world. I will admit I spent the first 20 years of my career uh, in advertising in New York, San Francisco, London and Paris. And I started in San Francisco at some really traditional and wonderful branding agencies like Innerbrand and made my way to New York and realized I was a New Yorker through and through and worked at multiple agencies in the city. I then met my boyfriend, now husband, and we moved to Paris together. And I worked in Paris and London for a bit. And my last stint was at an agency called RGA. It's an amazing blue chip digital agency. And I got the absolute pleasure and delight on working on such a variety of different kinds of businesses. And I think one of the, the most thrilling things about working agency side is if you do it right, you get to solve some of the most interesting brand problems out there. And you get to learn so much about different industries. It's kind of like you're a SWAT team that black ops parachutes in and they're like, this is a problem that we either don't want to tackle or don't know how to tackle. And they like call in the agency and you go in and I did everything from helping you know, ESPN, think about the redefinition of sports fandom to, you mentioned uh, sexual health and wellness. I worked with Planned Parenthood, which was an absolute gift and privilege on thinking about how to address the sexual health deserts in middle America and how to get that information in the hands of um, young women and non-binary um, teenagers who really needed answers that weren't just gossip and resources that weren't vetted. So we created a sexual health and wellness chatbot and used technology for good. Um, I had the opportunity to work on augmented reality. I got to help Uber think about how to create 
loyalty apps for both drivers and riders, which were really different communities that were incentivized by really different emotional loyalty triggers. So such really different, um, amazing projects. I got to work on Tiffany and L'Oreal and a whole gamut of projects. And I ended my career at RGA working on the Verizon business and launching iPhones with them and working on Super Bowl campaigns. It was my first foray into the metaverse way back in the day in 2019 and 2020. And then I got a call from the team at Christie's and I've been thinking of going client side for a while. You know, it's really exciting to get that phone call and get to solve some of these really hard problems. But I was left a little unfulfilled by not being able to see things from start to finish and to learn and iterate. And I really wanted to be able to, you know, do the whole thing nose to tail. And when I got the call from Christie's, it was such an interesting time. We were we were and still are in the midst of a global pandemic. I don't know when I get to stop saying I were um, in the midst it feels of a global close, pandemic. close, but also far away. So yeah. far away. <laughs> it's like, how long is a piece of string? Um, but it, it, art and auction is a very IRL scenario. You know, everyone's mm-hmm. seen those iconic scenes of people raising the paddles and bidding and the frenzy oh, in the, the phones, room. And yeah, that's the what phones I and people, you know, phone. raising yeah. the numbers. And you want to see art up close, especially when you're paying millions of dollars for it. And we don't just sell art. We sell diamonds. We sell dinosaurs. We sell sculpture. We sell all sorts of amazing things. But the devil's in those details. So how do you take that experience and how do you translate that into a digital world when that's the only option you really have? So it was such an interesting time to join the business. It struck a chord for me. You know, I've I've marketed so many things in my career, but the gift of being able to market these truly priceless one-of-a-kind objects is a gift I wake up every morning thankful for. It's so cheesy to say, but it's, it's the honest truth. So here I am a year and a bit later, um, fully immersed in the world of art and auction. And that world of art and auction has taken me so many unexpected places. You know, I think I came into it thinking, well, the pace might be a little slower, but maybe that's a welcome change. And I was so unimaginably wrong about the pace being slower. Uh, Three months after I joined, we sold an NFT for the earth-shattering, record-breaking price of $69.3 million. It was the NFT price heard around the world that started kind of a tech rocket ship in the art world, which was really exciting. in uh, March of this year, we announced a Marilyn Monroe that we are selling this May in uh, New York at Christie's that is estimate on request, but in the region of $200 million, which will be the most expensive estimate for a painting of the 20th century ever on record and is poised to perhaps become the most expensive painting ever sold at auction. It's been a year and a bit of record-breaking moments and fast-paced moments, and I wouldn't change it for the world. Those are some stories. <laughs> so there's a lot yeah. to start with. I do want to point out that when you said, oh, I realized I was a native New Yorker through and through. So funny because I have the exact opposite experience visiting New York. I'm like, I am a New York City visitor through and through. <laughs> 
It, it, yeah. New York is, I, I like to say it's Marmite. You know, you either love it or you hate it and you know yep. right away. There's no ambivalence yes. about New York City. Um, and, I, and I happen to love the flavor. Yes. Uh, Marmite is a good, a good comparison where it's like every once in a while you think, oh, maybe I'll try it again. Maybe it'll be different. And then you try it. But I keep trying anyway. Um, that's so funny. Um, well, there's so much to dig into there. One thing I want to talk about is Christie's pivot to online, just because I read a statistic that said that during 2020's one sale, which I believe is, you know, kind of the big event of the year for Christie's, if I'm not mistaken. So the one sale was a sale that we did in 2020. It was the first of its kind. It was a global mm -hmm. relay auction between New York, London, Hong Kong, and Paris. And it was a Very massive cool. virtual undertaking for us. That's yeah. what I was reading about is that 50% of the works that were auctioned were sold without the buyer even having seen them, which is a uh, I would imagine a big shift in the way that the auction business was run. So can you just tell me what what things that you all are keeping moving into the future about the virtual auctions, um, what you learned, what, what is maybe an improvement over the in-person experience or what is a, I don't know what the word for opposite of improvement is, but a, a, a deprovement in the virtual experience or as we sort of maybe emerge from the pandemic, like what are you keeping? What are you getting rid of? How are you using virtual experiences to supplement your in-person stuff as it picks back up? It's a great question and it's a great luxury to have, right? Because we've, we've learned so much from the data that we've received and the data we've received is shocking in so many ways. And I am a firm advocate of digital, but even I was surprised by the adoption of our client base and how many of our clients are really comfortable with the digital tools and services that we've offered, how many of them are engaging in online auctions, how many of them bid and transact online, because we're talking about really high price points. When you talk about the one sale, you know, th those objects are millions of dollars. They're not a lipstick. They're not, um, you know, a pair of shoes. They are priceless works of art. And that takes quite a leap of faith. And I think some of that leap of faith is the 250 plus years of reputation that Christie's has established. Um, and, you know, the ability to have seen a lot of these works of art up close in museums before they reach our hands sometimes. So what can I say? I think what we've learned is the optionality in digital has been a true additive experience for our clients. Being able to give them the option to view an auction in a live stream format that has the same effect as a TV program. I mean, our live streams are award-winning um, produced live streams. They're not just like one guy on a shaky camera in the back of the room and being able to provide them that option if they don't want to or can't travel. I think that is, that is huge. And I think that is something that our clients are grateful for and will continue to want. Um, I think offering them tools like super zoom photography, like augmented reality, the ability to take a piece of art or even a sculpture that's huge and you can't transport it and see what it looks like in your backyard. But with augmented reality technology, you can. I think that's something we, we won't be walking away from anytime soon. I think we've learned that you know, e-catalogs actually are really valuable to our, our clients and from a sustainability perspective are really important to our 
corporate goals. You know, we don't want to be producing uh, some of these heavy bound books that are behind me that we used to produce all the time because there are implications on, you know, the world that we don't want mm-hmm. to continue to perpetuate. So we've, we tried to move to a digital catalog format, which has worked quite well. So there's a lot of things that, you know, we are seeing that we will continue to do. I think, you know, will we be fully virtual in our auctions? No, we're so excited to welcome people back into our auction rooms at 20 Rockefeller Center and King Street and around the world. We had live auctions in the fall last year. Um, They were so much fun to go to. I'm looking forward to our live auctions in May in New York this season. Uh, We had folks in our auction rooms in, you know, London earlier this year. So I think there's definitely going to be a hybrid approach where we use digital technology to be additive to the IRL experience instead of replacing the IRL experience. Gotcha. Well, I hadn't thought about, um, you know, I, I feel like as if I personally get lost a lot in the VR side and have lost touch with what's exciting about AR, but the ability to visualize things before you purchase them in home is yeah. really special. I mean, that's, that's a new that's a, I guess, in the past three to five, maybe even less than five, maybe more like two to three years, an experience that I can imagine in, in the industry you're in makes a huge difference in the way clients think about purchasing and what they think about purchasing if they can sort of place it. <laughs> you know, it's like having a dressing room um, for free almost, or yeah, that's yeah, and you know, really we use cool. Technology as well. We've done um, full home walkthroughs in VR, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. And we actually we've used hologram technology, which is really exciting. Ooh, yeah. Uh, Tell me more March, about that. In March, we had a Frenzy's NFT sale where we had mm-hmm. um, the proto hologram machine here in Twenty Rockefeller Center, and so people were able to see the NFTs kind of come to life in three D via hologram technology. So we're always, you know, people think an auction house and they think, you know, 255 years old and they think, you know, we're not going to be keeping up with the times, but we're really pushing that envelope from a technology perspective. Um, So yeah, we're always experimenting with the new and the latest. Yeah. So speaking of, I would love to hear more about how you moved into NFTs and the Beeple sale. And that was obviously record-breaking and got a lot of news, um, which I think a lot of the news, it was, it was mixed, right? It was good and bad with a lot of people who are fairly resistant to the idea of NFTs and digital ownership, but how are you all thinking about it? And on, on your side, are the people that are coming into the auction houses, I'm imagining that they're excited about it, which is a good indication that eventually the negative press will subside and (laughs) digital ownership will become more of a a thing in the common vernacular. Um, But I would just love to hear about how you all got interested in NFTs. How did that happen? Yeah. And so, Funny enough, everyone knows us for Beeple as our first NFT sale, but our first NFT sale was in 2020 um, with a work by Robert Alice, the artist, and there was code in the work and we actually NFT'd some of the code that was embedded in the work. The Beeple sale though was not even arguably is our most well-known NFT sale, um, probably is the most well-known NFT sale, if I might be so bold. And you know, that came came to us through a lot of hard work that the team here at Christie's did. We have an extremely passionate, curious, thoughtful group of specialists who had 
been researching the space, been really curious about the space, been engaging with the NFT space. And I think curiosity and engagement in the NFT space are two of the most important tools for success in that space and really listening and thought that it made a lot of sense. I mean, I think we are primarily at our core about art in all of its format. So whether that format is paintbrushes or pixels, we are a platform for great art to come to bear and to succeed. And we just couldn't ignore this groundswell around NFTs. And so we partnered with Maker's Place and we did some digging into this artist people, AKA Mike Winkleman, and he was nothing if not prolific. I think his uh, first 5,000 days is an opus where he, you know, created artwork every day for 5,000 days. And not only that, but then to put that artwork out there into social media, which is notorious for um, abject criticism and, and kind of bear your soul out there and let people critique you anonymously. I have no idea how he does it. He must have the thickest skin of all of us. Um, and I think, you know, love it or hate it, all art is subjective. You, you have to admire the, the grit um, that went into a project like that. And, and we did. And so a group of us came together and we decided we wanted to move forward with it. And not only do we want to do the NFT sale, we want to do the sale um, accepting crypto, which was another, you know, yet another hurdle. And we wanted to market to a whole new audience. I hadn't even thought about that. It's so obvious, but yeah, that's that's a completely new system to implement. Yeah, it was purchased in ETH. Um, And and we wanted to market it to a whole new group of people. Um, you asked the very thoughtful question, you know, who are the buyers and the buyers for our NFT works of which we sold in 2021 over uh, $150 million with NFTs. Um, they are overwhelmingly the crypto native audience. They are digital creators. They are not our traditional art audience that has kind of swung the pendulum into the crypto and digital world with a few exceptions when we sold some Andy Warhol NFTs, when we sold some more traditional artists that had dipped their toes into the NFT space, we saw a little bit of crossover, but by and large, they are folks from the, from the digital art and NFT space. So we had to market to them, uh, which was a big challenge. This that was, was going a, to be my exact question. Yeah. Was you as a marketer, how were you thinking about reaching these folks? <laughs> well, it was in the heyday of Clubhouse. Remember when Clubhouse was all uh, the yes. rage? The very brief moment in time. <laughs> I know, but it was like, oh my God, we have to be on Clubhouse. How, how are we going to get channels? Who has an invite? <laughs> yeah, who has an invite? It was like the thing. Um, and so we were there. We were on Clubhouse. We were doing Clubhouse chats like, you know, a couple times a week and we were getting invited to different clubhouses to talk about it. And I just remember when the sale was happening, we were all tuned into clubhouse hearing people like live chat about the sale and the numbers that were being reached. And it was so exciting. Um, but yeah, we, we were on clubhouse. We got really engaged on Twitter because that is where our crypto native community is. Mm-hmm. Um, a few of us are on discord kind of on different channels. Uh, but it's more personally and not like as a firm. And we just stay engaged with the community. You know, I do a lot of speaking. A lot of our specialists do a lot of speaking. We go to NFT NYC, NFT Now, uh, ETH Denver, NFT LA. Like we, you know, we go to a lot of these conferences and 
and panels and make sure that we are out there um, talking the talk and also helping to demystify what NFTs are so that it's not only accessible to our crypto native NFT collectors, but also more traditional art collectors. Um, I was on a panel at the Aspen Institute not too long ago, um, which was attended solely by traditional art collectors trying to understand more about the NFT space. I think a lot of people are interested and afraid to ask. Mm -hmm. So, you know, making sure we're educating people about the space. Yeah, not from the art world, but from my own personal world, I have so many friends who are just not interested in crypto. And yet I know many, many people who collect Funko Pops. And I came up with a personal rule that if you own a Funko Pop, you are not allowed to make fun of anyone who purchases an NFT. Yeah, that sounds fair to me. <laughs> right. It's, you know, there's there's a whole a whole crowd of people out there looking to collect and be a part of a community in various ways and various expressions. And with everything else moving online, I'm not sure why that type of community building, collecting, being part of something, purchasing assets wouldn't be also moving online in some form or fashion. So Agreed. yes. And I think, and I, I, I didn't answer this part of your question, but you mentioned digital ownership and it's a really um, important part of the equation, right? Because mm -hmm. when we sold the people and kind of every time we saw an NFT, someone makes the argument about right, save, right, click, save. Yep. And to that argument, I say, you know, we're selling Andy Warhol's Marilyn Monroe. It's going to sell for hundreds of millions of dollars. You can mm -hmm. go buy a poster out of it at Barnes and Noble. And they are not the same thing. And so fundamentally, physical and digital, it all comes down to the question of ownership. And you have to ascribe to the idea that there is something special and important and meaningful about ownership, whether in a digital realm or in a physical realm. And I believe in that. And I think the people that are in the NFT community believe in that. And not only do they believe in the concept of ownership, but they also believe kind of in this greater metaverse concept that in a future where we spend more and more of our time in some meaningful way, right. in digital environment, owning a lot of these kind of um, digital artifacts will be akin to owning a lot of the traditional artifacts that Christie's is known for selling. So if you yeah. could have <laughs> owned, you know, uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat when he was an up-and-coming artist mm -hmm. it's kind of what you're doing when you own a crypto punk right now when a s small percentage of yeah it's still really really expensive yep. but it's only going to be yeah, more expensive yeah. um, in yep. 20 years so I know it, well it's so silly to me that that you know we, we've translated so much of our lives online already I don't think anyone wants to go back to you know paper billing and sending in bills so why wouldn't other types of ownership why wouldn't other types of assets why wouldn't other types of just community because I a lot of nft communities I sort of think of almost like sports teams you know you're you're purchasing an asset you're becoming part of something you're talking you're trading with other fans you're discussing newest drops it, it's so similar to me to any other type of fandom and there's collectibles associated with it the same way there's collectibles associated with any traditional sports team a great analogy. instead of buying a jersey you're you're buying an nft of something that yeah. that team has created and 
I can't understand. Well, I suppose I can sort of understand the resistance because there's been a lot of, of scammy and scummy things that have gone on. Um, and there's been, unfortunately, only press attention on those, I think. <laughs> so hopefully in the next, you know, one to five years, the press attention can can sort of refocus and people can become more comfortable with this idea. I think there's just a lot of negativity surrounding it. Yeah. Um, it's like either you take the time to sit down and know it or you just read headlines and think there's a lot of scammy stuff happening, which there is, and just write it all off whole, whole sale, whole full yeah. tilts. That's the word I'm looking yeah. for. So kind of silly. Um, but anyways, I want to getting back to our discussion, how, what is the balance that you see happening in the future between digital sales and real world sales at Christie's? Um, as in, I imagine the digital is growing, but do you ever see that overtaking the real world ownership sales of goods? I do not. And I say that with confidence Mm -hmm. Based on the fact that, you know, I said we did $150 million in NFT sales last year. For perspective, we did $7.1 billion in total. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> no, we're not there yet. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think, I think as with anything we sell at Christie's, we will always continue to sell the most covetable, most rare, most exclusive NFTs. And... I expect that that will still keep us somewhere in the realm of that $150 million mark for the foreseeable future. I'm not, you know, if I had a crystal ball, I wouldn't be sitting here. I'd be sitting on my private jet somewhere (laughs) or on my private island somewhere. But I think, you know, it's going to take a a long, long while um, for NFTs to reach the level of maturation where there's enough of them out there at enough of a price point mm-hmm. to capture the tipping point in sales. Because I think right. not only in masterpiece art, but in you know jewelry, in rare books and manuscripts, in old master paintings, in Asian art, you know, we do a, a whole raft of other items that comprise our sales. And so I think, you know, to put into perspective that $150 million in NFT sales can be one painting in an evening sale for us at, at this level. Um, so it's a lot, but it's also a little sometimes. Right. Well, that's what I'm wondering when I, I agree with you. I don't, I think it's going to be a quite a long while before you get before digital ownership surpasses real world goods. I just wonder how quickly or slowly that is going to grow into a easily noticeable you know, like when, when does it reach the 1 billion marker, the 2 billion marker? What I would say is I think there's uh, over, don't quote me on this, but I think there's quite a large amount of sales. I want to say over a billion dollars of sales being transacted on the other platforms Mm -hmm. like Nifty Gateway, OpenSea and the rest of it. So I, I think digital ownership is quite a expansive marketplace I would just say that at the top echelon, mm-hmm. not yet an established volume because we're we're dealing with a volume of art that has been established over the last, you know, I would say five hundred years. Right. So there's a lot to go around mm-hmm. in terms of rare art and object. I think there is a huge volume of NFT sales in 
the hundreds of millions, if not billions happening, but that's at all levels. And at Christie's, we're only ever going to transact at the top level. That makes sense. I'm, I'm wondering when that economy is going to, it's already developing, but I'm wondering when it's going to get out of its nascent stages. Um, just because we also have a lot more people who are a lot more connected in ways that are conducive to building an NFT economy more so than, you know, I know we've talked about 500 years, but there wasn't necessarily a uh, huge cadre of highly talented artists either. You know, you were talking yeah. about maybe the top 0.2% of art and artists out there. Um, and I'm just, I wonder how that's going to work with all of us being digitally inclined now and especially younger generations, like how quickly, you know, instead of taking 500 years, I wonder if it'll take 100 or yeah. 150 or what that's going to look like. Um, but I want to get more into this sort of supply problem um, because I saw a recent listing about the sale of an NFT of the first edit to Wikipedia immediately following its establishment. And that featured an interactive element that allowed the purchaser to recreate the experience of developing Wikipedia, which I thought was so cool. And I thought it was pretty neat that the NFT outsold the original computer that Wikipedia was created on. Um, I think that does make sense in terms of Wikipedia as a digital product as a digital good would outsell a physical yeah. good. But it's still it's still interesting to note that the digital good did markedly better than the physical good. And we've seen similar NFTs, you know, Jack Dorsey's first tweet sold, um, the New York Times article that was part of an experiment sold as an NFT. So when we talk about this volume problem, what kinds of different things are you excited to see? So we we definitely have art and artwork as a type, definitely have this sort of like, I don't know exactly how to call it, but tech bookmarking, <laughs> that's sort of a type of NFT. But are there any other ones, you know, partners with luxury fashion brands or I don't know anything. Is there anything out there that you think like, oh, I can't wait until this sort of becomes a digital good. Or I'm really excited to see the way this digital good develops. Yeah, that's a great question. So we we sold that NFT of Wikipedia for 750 grand. And that was that was that was a big one. It was really exciting. Um so cool. what I can't wait to see NFT is my COVID vaccination card. <laughs> so true. <laughs> that I carry around little scraps of paper everywhere. It's like everyone has that important paper drawer yeah. where it's like your social security card and like your it's like do not laminate, but we all like, you know, live in fear of losing it. And right. it's like my marriage certificate, my kids' birth certificates, like yeah. you know all these forms that are just like tattered pieces of paper that I usually end up having to pay the government to issue me a new one because I've lost it lives in our special paper drawer mm -hmm. um I can't wait to see all of those become digital goods on the blockchain I think there are um a number of different applications out there that we haven't even scratched the surface of. We sold last year um, our first luxury NFT that was in the form of an NFT of the bulletproof vest that Kanye West wore during his um, live performance of his Donda album. Huh. So we're into that space. But I see luxury brands are really leaning into the metaverse, specifically when it comes to gaming, because there's already user behaviors built in there, right? In gaming, mm -hmm. People are already really comfortable with the purchase of goods and services in gaming. They're really comfortable with the mm -hmm. idea of skins in gaming. And so to be able to kind of like up level that into a luxury, um, a luxury skin makes total sense. And I think luxury brands uh, are starting to catch on to that. There's like going to be a, 
a metaverse arm to fashion week. Yeah. There's there's lots of experiments going on that I think will be really interesting. Um, And, you know, there's been lots of great applications for sports fandom and sports memorabilia and NFTs. What am I, I I think for me, I'm, I'm most looking forward to the utility aspects of it. I I love that answer. Yeah. I think, you know, like there's fun stuff out there and like, yay. And I have like (laughs) some NFTs in my wallet that have kind of promised this ongoing membership aspect that it's like, once you have access to this initial token, kind of all of our drops and subsequent builds, you will have access to. And that's exciting from like a kind of like mystery grab bag perspective. And like, I'm part of a community and I don't really know how it's going to evolve, but I'm, I bought into it. That's exciting. But utility, like give me something that instead of holding like all these membership uh, papers, I can just have it on the blockchain and never have to think of it, of it again. That's, that's, that's what will make this girl happy. That's so funny to me because one of the things that I worked on or that I, one of the people that I talked to at a previous job was about um, car titles and putting them on the blockchain to yeah. make the sale and transfer of cars significantly easier for everyone involved. Um, so yes, I also am looking forward to the utility aspect. Yeah. Um, one of the early people that I followed who started really talking about the NFT space in 2019 mentioned the exact same thing about marriages as well. Imagine recording your marriage on blockchain instead of having to send in a marriage license. Uh Um, So yes, I do think that there is a huge practical side that is untapped. um, And I I heard someone describe this as a, what could be considered a boring transition into web three into how we think about our online presence and how we collect and use digital goods yeah. should be probably a little bit more boring than the current news suggests. I agree. Um, but I, like you, hope that all those practical matters that can be addressed by this technology begin to get addressed by this technology. Um, I want to backtrack for just a second though, because we had a previous call where you talked a lot about your work ethic um, and where your background, your family, where you came from and how it made a big impact to you to think about you being in the position you're in and being a role model for other younger girls and women who may not have always seen people who looked like you. And I know that you mentioned that you didn't see very many people that looked like you in the positions that you have been in and and will continue to be in. Um, But I wanted to address that really quick because this is the Meta Woman podcast. (laughs) So I wanted to just ask you what it's going to actually look like. You know, we have all this future tech, all this exciting stuff, but how are we going to make sure we start truly diversifying the workforce at all levels and getting more role models in there and getting more people involved? Yeah, I mean, it's so important, Lindsay. And I think my parents were immigrants to this country. And, you know, I think that that is uh, such a special journey and such a special part of my story and a part that I always tell people. I am you know, I just celebrated the Persian New Year um, in March and I celebrate my culture and it's something I have two young girls that I'm going to raise them with as well. And I take I, I take pride in that. And I want everyone from any walk of life, whether it be cultural diversity, whether it be, you know, gender diversity, whether that be, you know, what, what, whatever it is and however you identify to feel like there's a path for you. And to feel like you have an authentic place in leadership. And so for me, I heard someone say it so beautifully. I was on a panel for International Women's Day. um, And the woman on the panel with me said, it's important to model messiness. 
And I could not agree with that more. I think it is not something that we can just um, pretend that our lives fit into these neat little boxes and that I'm work Netta and that at home I'm mom Netta and I'm wife Netta and I'm Iranian American Netta and I'm, you know, all these different versions of Netta. I am all those versions of Netta wrapped into one ball. And I think I'm at my best when all those versions of Netta come to the party. And so I try and be as authentically me as I can. Um, and I try and encourage those around me to be as authentically them as they can by modeling that messiness, by saying, you know what, I got to go. I told you I need to leave this, this podcast a few minutes early because my parents are in town and I want to go show them the gallery downstairs. And that's really important to me. So I got to go do that today. And, you know, I'm going to be really excited about that and proud about that. And some days I need to leave a meeting early to go pick up my kids because I need to show up as mom, Netta. And then I hop back on a call later on that evening because I got to be work, Netta. And, you know, it's, it's all a part of who we are. And I think modeling that messiness instead of trying to pretend there's any attainable perfection is really mm -hmm. important. And then I think when you see those women around you, letting them be comfortable and confident with them, talking about that messiness, and then also celebrating them and promoting them. Like, I don't just want to like high five ladies. I want right. to give ladies raises. Yeah. I want to give ladies opportunities. I want to give ladies speaking roles. I want to give ladies like, you know, all of those great things that people saw in me that helped me get to where I am. I want to give those opportunities to people because it's one thing to say like, I celebrate you, but it's another thing to say, you know what, I'm going to sit this pitch out and I'm going to pull my colleague into this pitch because she's got a really powerful voice. And I know that if you guys see that, you will see her in a different light. And that's actually doing something with my voice instead of just saying she's great. Yeah, I think that's so important. I think it's important too, because unfortunately we do sort of carry the burden sometimes of forcing attention onto our female colleagues and especially women of color. Um, this is a theme that's come up over and over, but it, it does take bravery for people to look and listen to people who don't look like them. It yeah. takes a lot of, it takes bravery to step outside of your comfort zone and it takes um, the wherewithal to realize when you need to do so. And sometimes having that extra push of look at this person, <laughs> pay attention to them is, is the push that's necessary. So yes, I love love the idea of standing up for women. And I hope as we move into more of a metaverse and, and NFT and VR and AR, all those spaces that we can have more women creators and yeah. collaborators and in positions of power and all of that. Um, well, with in mind, I know you have to run soon. So I'm going to just quickly summarize our conversation. Uh, we started with an awesome uh, awesome discussion about how Christie's has moved into online. Just so cool. Um, I mean, the whole... I have not been this close to the luxury auction industry in my life. So <laughs> extremely fun for me to learn about that and to learn about how you all adapted during the pandemic and some of the virtual tools that you're going to wind up keeping in your arsenal, like VR and AR experiences, um, is really neat. Especially think it's cool that you can use AR to model some of the things that people might be purchasing in their own homes. That's very, very intelligent use of the technology. We also talked a lot about NFT sales. One thing that I thought was really interesting was about how it kind of brought in a completely different crowd for you to market to, as it were, um, and how it's a crowd of full of cryptocurrency natives. So not necessarily the typical art crowd, but definitely a little bit different. And now you're getting some cross-contamination between the typical art and the crypto natives and back and forth, which is pretty neat. 
We also talked about how NFTs can be used for practical and impractical things, which I think is really important to note. There's a lot of negativity surrounding the technology itself when really the options are pretty boundless at this point. So I think I think I can confidently say that both of us are pretty excited to see what happens within the NFT space in the next 5, 10, 20 years. Um, and the last thing we talked about was making sure that we boost women colleagues. It can be hard um, in some of the environments we're in for women to get attention. So we have to not only talk about it, but be about it and put women forward uh, for things when they have earned and deserve it. So I like to end every episode uh, with one special section called a moment of reflection. It's just a chance for you to look back on your career, offer any pieces of advice you might have to women who are looking to take the same nonlinear path that you did or are in bits and pieces of it. Um, But what is one thing you would like to tell your younger self about getting into the tech industry and being successful? Not specific to tech, but I think just specific to life. Mm-hmm. There's two pieces of advice I would give my younger self and everyone's younger self. The first is take the risks. I think, you know, women tend to be more risk averse and we tend to take the safer path, myself included. And there's lots of rewards in the risks and you, you do regret the risks you don't take. And um, right now I see so many um, different and interesting paths to success. If you take NFTs, for an example, that is not a linear and traditional path to financial success. But those who are taking those risks are finding oftentimes success in it. And I want those risk takers to also be women. Much like the traditional art world, it is a highly white male world in the NFT space. And so um, there are so many lovely female-led projects, you know, Yem Karkai from World of Women, Lisa from Boss Beauties, you know, Barbara LA from Flower Girl NFTs. There are amazing projects out there, but they are few and far in between and we need more female voices and NFTs or whatever it is, take those risks. And the second thing I would say is you are the CEO of your own career. No one is going to be a better advocate for what you need than you are. So anytime you can speak up for yourself, ask for the raises, ask for the opportunities, have a voice at the table. You don't ask, you don't get. And, you know, I think it is really important to push beyond that discomfort of an initial ask into an uncomfortable conversation that can result in a better opportunity, more pay, more chances, more ways to grow, or at least the acknowledgement that you're ready for that next step. And it's really, really important to be a vocal advocate for your own career because no one else out there is going to do it for you as well as you can do it for yourself. There might be people out there advocating for you, but no one's going to do it for you better than you can. So be your own CEO. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you, follow you, follow your work, follow Christie's? <laughs> um, my Instagram handle is super complicated. It's my maiden name. It's at Namaranian, N-A-M-I-R-A-N-I-A-N. But that's where all my good content is. Um, and I would love for anyone to follow me there and see all the great stuff we do at Christie's, see all the great stuff I do with my fashion and my girls and my life. And that's where all the good stuff is. And please feel free to dm me i'm always happy to grab a coffee or have a chat with um anyone who's trying to find their path oh thank you so much for all of our listeners be sure you leave those five star ratings and reviews check out other holodeck media podcasts including meta business and the business of esports 
I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Lindsay at Lindsay Poss. And you can catch me Wednesday nights in the Business of Esports Live After Show. This podcast will be in your feed every Tuesday. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us here on Meta Woman. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. Leave a five-star review and tell your friends, family, and colleagues all about us. Also, make sure to follow Meta TV on all socials to get more of the best Metaverse content anywhere. Tune in every week for another episode of Meta Woman.